This is exactly right. You are your safe space to your kids. So they're going to act out and push boundaries and do all of that. So we all experience that, that more at home, but it's out in the world. I want our kids to, instead of being like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, how do you want to contribute to society? Like how you talk about just like being loving and engaging and healthy. Like that's all I want for my children. And it's like, how do we foster that? Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful, about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is called Miraculous Mamas. And I am so excited to introduce you to our guest, Elizabeth Joy. Elizabeth is a doula, a mother, and also a fellow podcaster. In her original unfiltered true-to-life podcast, Miraculous Mamas, Elizabeth gets very real with her industry experts, celebrities, and moms discussing in-depth topics like motherhood, pregnancy, childbirth, and many other pressing women's issues. It's for anyone who's looking for a safe and honest place without judgment, where they laugh, cry, and hot flash about every female topic from pregnancy, sex, to postpartum depression, and much, much more. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. So I, um, there's so much I want to ask you and, uh, it's always, you know, as you know, like where to start. Um, so where I decided to start is your, like your road to becoming a doula. I, I, if you could tell everyone, like not everyone knows what a doula is and the role of a doula, but let's get the backstory first on how you came into that, um, this line of work. And I would say more of a, uh, line of living, uh, even more so than work. Yes. Uh, so it started uh, a long time ago. So I lived in Vegas for about 12 years. And while I was living there, my sister was there as well. And she got pregnant. And at the time, Vegas, which still has a really high C-section rate, had the highest rate in the country. So about a 40% C-section rate, which means mm. almost half of the moms going into birth were ending up in C-sections. And when you look at uh, like the World Health Organization, they recommend that a country's rate be 10 to 15%. We're at 34% nationwide. And she, I mean, we were both clueless. She's a few years older than me. She's pregnant with her first kid in her mid-20s, um, goes to the doctor and the insurance had messed up her medical records and switched them with somebody else's. <laughs> and because of this, it ended up being this huge thing with insurance and coverage. So her and her husband looked for other options and they ended up finding a midwife to do a home birth. And that was like my first introduction to it. I think I was, yeah, I was 21 years old and I was there for her birth. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is like life changing, seeing a life come into this world. And it just kind of always stuck with me. So a few years later, a lot of my friends were getting pregnant and having babies. And 
we're ending up in these situations that to me just didn't sound right. Mm-hmm. Um, being like, yeah, my doctor told me my baby's too big. So we just scheduled a C-section. I'm like, really? Like, is that a thing? And so I started researching um, and learned about doulas and got really into it. I did took some courses. I attended some births. And then I was still kind of figuring out what I was doing in my life. I feel like my whole 20s was basically <laughs> me trying to figure out what I'm doing with my life. Mm-hmm. And so I traveled, did a few other things. I took a course to become a life coach, um, which was really cool. And then I just kept coming back to the doula work. I'm like, I really want to help people feel empowered in their birth because when mm-hmm. you're being told you can't do it in that phase, when do you start feeling like you can in motherhood? When do you start feeling like, oh, I got this now, but in birth, I was told, oh, you can't do this. Oh, you have to do it this way. And a lot of people, a lot of stories I was hearing, people felt like birth was happening to them, Mm. not that they were actually a part of the experience. So I just became really passionate about it and went to go do my recertification because I didn't finish the course before. So a couple years ago, I just really started focusing on the doula work and got a job here in Chicago um, at a hospital that employs doulas. So I work with three other doulas with a midwife group, which has been a really cool experience. I definitely miss taking clients on my own. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll probably go back to that eventually, but it's definitely been a learning experience being in the hospital. And then um, I wanted the podcast because there's so much information out there that's That you don't know. Like I have so many pregnant people reach out to me and they didn't know that they had different options. They didn't know um, like actual numbers and research and statistics. And I think that there's a misconception with doulas that if you're going to have a doula, you're going to have a home birth, an unmedicated birth. And that's not the case at all. Like I just gave birth in September and I ended up getting an epidural, but I mm-hmm. felt empowered making that decision because mm-hmm. I knew the research. I mm-hmm. had a doula there with me. My midwife was so supportive. Um, there was informed consent with every decision made along the way. And um, I knew in that moment that that's what my body needed. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted other people to feel that way. And with the podcast, I just wanted to bring on people to share their stories. Um, and then even getting into some of the parenthood stuff, motherhood, um, all aspects of life, because it can definitely feel like an isolating mm-hmm. place sometimes. We don't live in community like we used to. So just people sharing their stories so that you're feeling validated in yours. I think it's so, I mean, I honestly, I've never thought about it as you just said it, whereas your your beginning experience of being a mother, it, it starts with how much control or lack of control you have in the, the pregnancy process, the birthing process. Um, and I think that's really, that's profound. Like that's really impactful to think about how decisions can be made or maybe are being made for people without them even knowing that they have decisions. And so mm-hmm. what, why, you know, why is that, why was that statistic so high? Like just to, so we can get a sense of why are there higher rates of C-sections in certain parts of the country than others? Um, well, I mean, some of the higher places are in lower income areas where people just aren't given options and there's some systemic racism happening. Um, you see like Miami's huge for C-section rates. Um, and 
And in different areas, it's always different reasons. I mean, it's pretty high, again, nationwide. So um, it kind of goes back to the 1990s when um, there was a lot of different information that came out about VBACs, which is a vaginal birth after a cesarean, and whether they were safe or not. And the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists kind of took a stance on it saying, you can get a VBAC as long as there, we feel that it's safe as long as there's an anesthesiologist available. Well, not all places had an anesthesiologist on call 24-7, always available. Um, And that just kind of changed some of the way that people practiced. And then it kind of got viewed as an unsafe practice when it's really not. It can increase the chance of placental abruption, but it's like by like 0.3%. So a doctor can tell you like, oh, well, with a VBAC, your chances of this happening go up by, you know, 30%. Mm-hmm. And you hear that and you're scary. And you're, But when you actually look at the numbers, you're like, oh, 0.1% to 0.3%. That's mm-hmm. a statistic I deserve to know to make that decision for myself, whether I want to try or not. Right. So like the practice that I work at, we have a 75% VBAC rate, which mm. is huge. Yeah, Most places don't have that at all. And we only have a 7% C-section rate. So um, it's it's pretty incredible to like be in that practice and see the evidence-based mm-hmm. like options that are happening, that people are informed of their decisions, that we will do everything we can to have a birth happen the way that you envision. But obviously there are times when there's unplanned things that happen. Sure, sure. And obviously you're at a very progressive place that you have doulas and midwives on staff. Um, that's mm-hmm. a, that's wonderful. Um, and as, as you just pointed out for everyone listening, obviously there's reasons for C-sections. There's medical reasons um, that you know in advance that why you would need one. There's things that can go wrong mm-hmm. um, during unexpected things during a delivery. So how about this other side of it? I mean, because C-section, outside of that, C-section seem very convenient. Um, you know, they can be scheduled for everyone. And also, um, they. Co- I'm guessing they cost more. I don't want to get into all this, but I'm like, is there a healthcare insurance reimbursement thing going on as well? Uh, well, I mean, it's definitely more convenient and more expensive. And a part of it is, yes, like, if you've already had your first C-section, then we can just schedule the second one. That's it. Um, and then even with the first time moms um, looking for reasons, there are some practices that do that, but definitely not all. There's a lot of places that aren't trying to just make it a baby making factory. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are places that are like I've worked at a, I didn't work at the hospital, but I've had clients that go to the same hospital and every single birth has ended up in a cesarean because that's how they operate. And almost everyone I know who's gone to this hospital has gotten one yeah. um, because they just kind of push it. It's like, oh, you've been in labor 12 hours. I think it's time for a C-section. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like birth isn't linear. Every experience is so different. So you definitely do see some of that. I want to give most people the benefit of the doubt. Sure, and sure. that they're not just trying to do that. But then there's also standards of practice that once people have kind of been practicing the same way and they're like, well, I know that if we schedule it, if we do this, then we're going to, the baby's going to be safe. You're going to be fine. We're going to get in, we're going to be out. Everything's going to be good. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like maybe in birth, some things could go wrong, but mm-hmm. I mean, things can go wrong at any point. Um, yeah. Or they can go perfectly fine. Yeah. yeah. So uh, it, I just find it very interesting that in the majority of the world, 
Like if you look at Europe, the entry level care for pregnant people is midwifery care. And then if they are high, um, what's the word I'm looking for? High risk. High risk, high cutie. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yes. And then what, if they're high risk, then they go to an OB, mm-hmm. which is just not something that you see here in, in the States mm-hmm. is um, everyone kind of goes to OB and mid- midwifery also kind of has that misconception that, oh, if you're going to go to a midwife, you have to have this like hippy dippy, right. you know, everyone chanting home birth, which just isn't the case. At so, all. so tell So tell us the difference, like midwife, doula, what what's different? How do they overlap? And what are, what are the roles? Yeah. So we are, doulas are very different from midwives. Midwives, uh, depending on where you live, have different levels of certification. So in order to practice, I'm in the state of Illinois, I live outside Chicago. Um, you have to be a certified nurse midwife, which means you had to have been a nurse first, a registered nurse, and then gone on to, um, receive your midwifery degree. Uh, so a lot of them, they they practice in hospitals for years first, mm-hmm. uh, and then go on to receive their degree. A lot of places, a lot of people have their masters in midwifery here. And, um, and that's how a lot of the States operate. Some places you don't have to have had any necessarily formal medical training, but you go through a midwifery program where you do receive medical training through their program. And it's more of a certification process in a lot of States that is not really seen as like a legal way to do it. Although people still hire those midwives and use them. That was what was used. This is super interesting. So that's what was used in the country um, for a really long time. And if you look at Alabama, um, Margaret Charles Smith was like a midwife in Alabama for years. And she was a black midwife there. And over 30 years, she did not lose one mom. Wow. And when they made that, she wasn't a formally trained midwife. Mm-hmm. It was part of their generational training. They knew, they practiced what they knew. They passed it down. Um, once they made it illegal and forced women to start going to the hospitals, they started dying. Mm. And we have the highest maternal death rate in the United States today versus the other high income nations. Like we have a higher maternal death rate than Lebanon, than Turkey. Then Kazakhstan, countries where you think, oh, the women are probably not treated as great there. <laughs> but yeah. here, our death rates increased in the last 20 years. More women are dying than our parents' generation. So um, it's pretty interesting when you look at those statistics and how they they changed that. Um, but most, mo- even their states now where midwifery is illegal. Um, but I have, I know people who still used them. Uh I've never attended a birth with an illegal midwife, <laughs> but, um, but it's just super interesting. So all of them have received a different level of mm-hmm. training in order to be a doula. You don't have to receive any medical training. Uh, we go through a certification process. I don't perform any medical tasks, so I will never do a cervical exam. I won't even take your blood pressure, anything like that. I am a trained labor expert and I provide informational physical and emotional support to my clients. Mm -hmm. So I will help you develop a birthing plan, um, come up with the options that are good for you, make sure that you're with the right provider. And then when you go into labor and delivery, it's a lot of physical work. We do provide a lot of, um, we do like hip squeezes, counter pressure, suggesting different positions, supporting you, Mm -hmm. um, helping with the information. So when the doctor comes in and is like, Hey, I think we need to do this intervention, um, kind of, interpreting some of that for you because we know 
most of the mm-hmm. medical terms and, um, and some of the alternatives that might work. Uh, we want to support your birth plan, but also know that um, plans don't often go right. <laughs> as we plan them to. Um, and, and also help with your partner too. Your partner sometimes needs a break. They might not know how to help you. So we help the partner help you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I know a lot of midwives who are kind of trained doulas and then become midwives. So, um, we don't necessarily overlap. I would just say that a lot, a lot of times when people hire a midwife, they also hire a doula. Huh. Um, that's kind of where the overlap is. And then also a lot of similar beliefs surrounding birth. Mm-hmm. Do you find yourself in, I imagine, a trusted advocacy role when things are starting to happen in the room and decisions need to be made that are not like consistent with the plan? Are, so are you more an interpreter or also a guide? Uh, you know, how do you manage those situations? It's really hard because advocacy is a part of doula work, but also at the same time, we aren't trained medical providers and I will never make a decision on my client's behalf. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I choose to do is if the doctor is like, I think we need to do this thing. And the client looks at me, I always say, can we have some time mm-hmm. and then have time to talk it out. And that's where I'm like, listen, like here is the pros, here's the cons. Here's, um, maybe ask, Hey, can we give it more time? Let's, let's revisit this in a couple more hours. I want to give my body more time. Um, and kind of help them come up with questions to ask and then assess, you know, how severe. So, cause some, a lot of times you change your mind in birth. I wasn't planning on getting an epidural, but after feeling like my legs were being ripped off of my body, I decided Mm -hmm. to. Mm -hmm. So, um, and there's been births where things weren't going as planned. And I've been like, maybe you do need to get an epidural and it can be an amazing tool to help relax your body, be able to allow it to open for the baby to come down. It can definitely help out a lot in situations where maybe there's been sexual trauma, um, or other things like that, that have happened. So, mm-hmm. um, it's a fine line with the advocacy thing. Cause we're always there to support our client and, my biggest thing is to make sure that they're feeling heard and validated. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, we, we're never going to like overstep on mm-hmm. a doctor's, yeah. you know, yeah. but they, but, but just letting them know you still have a choice. You have a choice. Like, obviously if it's like life or death then they're going to let you know. Yeah. And I think that's key for everyone to listen is the idea of choice and having a, um, someone with you who can help you and like create time, create space, help interpret what's going on, particularly in sometimes very high stress situations is really, Mm -hmm. really, um, a gift. And, um, what this is making me think of is my, so my wife, uh, is a former neonatal intensive care nurse and former labor and delivery nurse all before we had our first child. And while she was pregnant, there were times when she's like, I know too much. You're like, I, I know a lot about things that can happen and I'm trying to put that aside. So I'm, my question for you is, you know, given what you've seen and what you knew and all of what you've experienced prior to having your first child, how, how did, how did you process all of that information? Yeah. I felt like going through it kind of like reopened a lot for me. Um, cause I would try to give myself the same advice I'd give my clients, but it wouldn't really work. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think for me, the pregnancy was 
I, I'm lucky. I had a really easy pregnancy. Um, toward the end, I had really bad like sciatica and hip pain, but like I felt great. I never threw up. I, I loved being pregnant. I absolutely loved it. You're um, one of those, right? They're the people yeah. <laughs> that go like, Oh my God, you had that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but I was preparing my body before pregnancy. I'd worked with like a hormonal, I had some hormone issues going on. I worked with like a, a doctor, a natural path to like balance some things out, um, to make sure I was nutritionally, all my nutrient panels were good. I wasn't like deficient. And, um, but labor was not, was not what I thought it was going to be. Mm. And that's like where doulas, you know, where I come into play. And even my midwife, like my, my labor was very weird. <laughs> and my doula and my midwife were like, yeah, I was like puking my brains out when I was only five centimeters dilated. Mm. Like it was horrible. Um, and she was kind of stuck. She was coming in sideways. It's called like ACE and clinic. My cervix was swollen. Um, just like a lot of thing factors that weren't going in my favor. She was sunny side up and, um, and I had done all the things, right. Cause mm -hmm. I'm a doula. I did everything to make sure she was in the right position. I was doing spinning babies every day. I was doing curb walking. I was doing all the stretches and exercises to make sure she was the right, the right position. And she wasn't, um, so it was hard because I thought when I went into labor, I'm like, either I'm going to wait too long and we're going to have this baby in the car hmm. or I'm going to get to the hospital and they're going to be like, you're two centimeters dilated. And I'm going to be like, what? And that's exactly what happened. We got to the hospital and that's two centimeters dilated. And, um, I mean, I do think that you, you can know too much, but in the same time, I kind of felt more empowered. Like, again, I knew what my options were. Like I knew at any moment what I could ask for and that I wouldn't feel bad about it because I knew the risks, the benefits, I knew the statistics of what are the percentages of things that could go wrong. Where I delivered um, has an amazing NICU um, NICU in their hospital, mm -hmm. which our daughter actually ended up in the NICU for a week. So um, it wasn't at all what I planned. I'm like, I'm going to have this unmedicated birth it's going to be so wonderful. We're going to bring our daughter home. And it, that just wasn't it at all mm -hmm. for me. And I really think that it was something that I had to go to go through just to kind of enhance even my doula practice and right. to make me more empathetic. Um, and, and something that my husband and I had talked about, like one of the reasons we decided to birth where we did, we birthed where I work because um, I knew the midwives there. I knew the doulas. I felt really comfortable. The nursing staff is like amazing. The labor and delivery nurses there are just awesome, awesome. And, um, and so I felt comfortable going there, but we had talked about is home birth an option is a birthing center an option. And I always pictured that I would have home births, but after doing a lot of research, I learned that first time moms have a really high transfer rate with home births. Mm. And when people hear transfer rate, a lot of times they think that something horrible happened and that's not, that's not it. It's they hit a point where they're like, I need an epidural. I'm going to the hospital or the midwife's like, the baby looks like they're stuck. We, we really need to head to the hospital just to make sure that everything's okay. They're not life or death situations, but they're just like precaution or the client changes their mind and is like, give me the drugs. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I just didn't want to take that risk because 
I'm like, I don't want to be in the middle of labor and transfer to a hospital. And also the hospital I'd transfer to is not the one that I want to birth at. So, um, so we went with the, the hospital and we were planning our next birth at a birthing center. So, um, so, I mean, it, I feel like there's em- empowering empowerment in having all the information. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you do know that things can go wrong. I think you just never think it's going to happen to you. Right. We have these visions in our head about how it's going to be also with parenting, which we'll get to, right? Like how we think it's going to look and how it's going to go. And we usually are uh, surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the whole idea of, you know, where the learning in life as we get older and we experience different things, um, I think what we learn is things are often not what we think they're going to be, but there's so much learning and then grown wisdom through the process. Um, what I always think about this as a, as a uh, psychologist before having kids and after having kids and how different my worldview changed. And, um, you know, I used to think it was easy before having kids. You just tell parents like, how do you, this is do this with your kids and do this with your kids. And then this will happen. And then you have your own kids and they come in as these independent beings that already have these personalities and everything. So it changes everything. What from your experience, before we talk about motherhood, from your experience as doulahood, do you, what do you see and do differently from pre being a mom to now having gone through a pregnancy and delivery? Oh man, that's like, how do I do, dif- what do I do differently? Just like, like in my you, daily life? Yeah, no, I'm so, as a doula, like, is there anything now that with oh, perspective yeah, of, yeah, a perspective of having done what you coach, right? Like I was at that same point mm-hmm. as like, here's parents, here's how to be a parent, even though I've never been a parent. And then I was a parent. And so, <laughs> hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, well, I think before I had my daughter Jovi, I always was very supportive of whatever your birth plan is. Um, because it's not my plan. This is your plan. I think after having her, um, I'm just, I became so much more passionate about having a birthing team that is supportive because at one point when I was pushing her out, a nurse like busted into the room and was like the OB on call, like doctor, whatever wants to know why you're not prepping her for a C-section right now. Hmm. And my midwife advocated for me. And she's like, cause she's literally pushing out the baby right now. And I know that if I was in a different hospital, I would have ended up in a C, in a C-section. Mm-hmm. And I think having a birth team that advocates for you is so important because my birth would have been completely different if I was somewhere else, completely different. Um, they wouldn't have given my body that time. Like it took me seven hours <laughs> to dilate two centimeters. And in some hospitals, they call that a failure to progress and they will tell you that they need to do a C-section. Um, whereas there's no research that, that backs that up. So, um, making sure that my clients, I mean, it's different because I'm at the hospital, but I still work with people now on developing their birthing plan. And the one thing that I always tell them is look at the hospital statistics, the rates, the C-section rates, the VBAC rates, talk to your doctor, drill them. Like we somehow have this thing that like doctors have this authoritarian figure over us, but I'm like, you hired them they work for you. So you pick a doctor who's going to support your plan, get word of mouth, talk to people who have delivered at this practice, hire a doula if you can, um, and make sure that you are fully supported in your birth because 
it could be such a different experience depending on where you're birthing at. So Mm -hmm. I feel like after having my daughter, I just, I'm a huge advocate for that for, Mm -hmm. If a doctor's not listening to you, switch practices. Like, I don't, if you're 38 weeks pregnant, that's fine. Like, if you're feeling uneasy with who you're with, switch. Mm -hmm. Like, you are, you have to start advocating for yourself now. And then when you have children, you're going to be advocating for them. So you have to start advocating for yourself and your health now. Mm -hmm. I feel like that kind of ignited this fire in me because I'm this little baby that I'm like, I have to protect her. And if how, if I can't protect myself, how can, how am I Mm going to protect her? Well, and you seem like a very intuitive person because what I'm hearing is that it actually strengthened um, and galvanized what you already believed. It almost like it mm-hmm. just pushed it to the metal yeah. more. Yeah, it did for sure. Mm-hmm. I think I became more vocal. Mm-hmm. I've kind of always been more of like um, a timid person. I wouldn't say timid, but like my husband used to say like, you could, he would get mad at me because I was more of a pushover and he'd be like, stand up for yourself. You need to stand up for yourself. Even with like stupid things, he'd be like, no, you call that company back and say, you give me a lower rate. And I'm like, I can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like just after having her, it's like brought out definitely more of this vocal, like, Mm. no, no, thank you. I don't need that. Like Mm -hmm. just very more of knowing what I want, who I am. And like, nothing's personal, right? It's right, just like, right, right. <laughs> you just have to say what you mean. And that's it. Yeah. And you don't, and that's a really good point. Cause you don't have to get big and scary and angry. It's really about internally just knowing where your boundaries and limits are. And then just speaking your voice and knowing that everything is your choice. They, no one can make you take a different rate or sign up for something, right? Exactly. It's just kind of like standing your ground and being like, no, thank you. I'm good. Right. Right. Yeah. And before I just had a really hard time with that. Still now, sometimes I'll be like, babe, you call, you do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I definitely have gotten more, more vocal. So I was listening to a recent, one of your recent podcasts um, with Corey, uh, Duck Dynasty Mama. And uh, what I really, it was a great conversation. Um, She has so much wisdom, right, that she Mm -hmm. imparted. And um, what I really appreciated about um, what you were saying is just really in a transparent way, talking about all of the other fears that we have as parents, bringing a child in this world and raising them. And I'm, and you know, what would you say are like, what are those, we're going to work through those fears. Like, what are those, what are those, what are those biggest fears that like are whispering to you that you, that you hear, but you're wanting to, you know, you're wanting to move through those past those. Yeah. I mean, I, I said like in that episode with her, I'm like, I'm just so scared. I'm going to screw up my children. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I think because when you bring like two people together, like my husband and I are trying to figure out how we want to parent because there's things from our childhood that we look back on and we love. And there's a lot of things that we want to change. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's hard for me to try to figure out like, I, she's only 10 months old. So I'm not like really having to parent yet. I'm still just like providing her for her needs. Mm-hmm. But like when that starts happening, like when, what do you do? Like, I I can have like a hot temper and um, 
which is something that is new. When I got, when, after I had her, I noticed that I had this postpartum rage mm. um, that I get really angry. And it's something I've been working through. And I don't, I'm not somebody who like just snaps and blows up. I'm not like a yeller. Um, it's just like this internal, I see red and I'm like, I need to go sit alone before I like break something because I, and, and trying to figure out where that's coming from. And mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing is wanting to protect her, but also teach her about the world. And that's like one of my really big fears is how do I teach her to know the things that she needs to know, like learning them at home versus maybe learning them somewhere else in a different way, but protecting her at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that, that's hard for me. Um, but I think when I picture her just cause we, we have tons of nieces and nephews, so we're the youngest on both sides. So we've seen it happen when your kids just like talk back to you or whatever. I'm like, how do you handle that situation? Yeah. Like, how do I not yeah. be like, you're being a little asshole. Yeah. And go to your room. Like, how do I not say that? <laughs> <laughs> totally. And you know what, as, um, as seeing, when you are the youngest and you know, when you don't have the kids and you're seeing your nieces and nephews do and talk and say things and you're like, before you have kids, like I would never let my child say that to me. And then all of a sudden, you know, fast forward five, seven, okay. 10 years, your child says that to you, right? It's like, it's so, so you're right. It's like, what do I do? So I want to, so first of all, that you're already having these thoughts about how do I raise my, how are we going to raise our kids? How are we going to keep what we liked from our own families of origin? What are we going to change? I mean, I, honestly, that's like, that's over 50% of it because that's that awareness. That's like, mm-hmm. hmm, you're being like really mindful ahead of time, knowing that these things are going to come, but like, you're really thinking about it. So first of all, like kudos, because that's, that awareness is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, And then I think the other thing that most of us have to contend with is parental fear. I mean, many, I've taught many parents describe never even, I mean, there's some parents who have lived life with anxiety and worries and fear. And then of course it gets transferred on to our kids, but there's also lots of people who didn't worry that much. And all of a sudden they have a child and they're like, oh my gosh, like I am worrying about this and this and this. And so I just want to normalize that and then say, it's again about being mindful and thinking, okay, that's down the road. Right now, I got to deal with the present, right? Like right now, I have a 10-month-old. Okay, now I have a one-year-old. Okay, now I'm going to deal with terrible twos or terrible threes. It's trying to bring ourselves back to right now because these are such important foundational years. Some people think zero to two or zero to three, other people zero to five, and a lot of people zero to seven. Like these years where you as parents are the primary experience givers, as you're talking about, are so key um, before our kids go into the world and then have other experiences that we often can't control and then have to help them navigate through. Mm-hmm. Well, and something you said just brought it up for me too, though, like seeing the other kids, it's like, I feel like so many kids these days just don't have respect for like adults. And mm-hmm. that's hard for me because mm-hmm. when I was a kid, I never would have talked to my grandma a certain way. I never would have talked to um, an aunt or an uncle a certain way. And these days it just seems like kids sass off to everyone. So my husband and I talk a lot about like, how do we teach our kids to be respectful um, without also completely breaking their spirit? You know, like I want you to have, I'm really big on like, 
I'm not going to force my kid to hug you goodbye if they don't want to. Mm-hmm. Um, I want them to learn that they have choices over their body. Maybe they're being shy. Maybe they don't get a good vibe from you. I don't know. But, um, but like being respectful, um, and, and I don't know, it's just like hard. You just see kids being so disrespectful these days. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but he and I were both really good kids. Like I, I don't think kids are necessarily bad. So that's like not good phrasing, but like mm-hmm. we just were very go with the flow. I don't know if it's like, because we were the youngest, but I hardly ever got in trouble. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't a troublemaker till my twenties. <laughs> 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 then I rebelled. Yeah. Um, but it's just like kind of baffling some of the things you do see. I know that your kids, you are your safe space to your kids. So they're going right. to act out and push boundaries and do all of that. Um, so I'll experience that, that more at home, but it's like out in the world. Like I, I want our kids to, um, contr- like, instead of being like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, how do you want to contribute to society? Like, how totally. do you want to, totally. right. um, like how, how you talk about just like being loving and engaging and healthy, like that's all I want for my children. And it's like, how do we foster that? Yeah. And again, you're leading with that intention. So when we talk about like, what's a, everyone has their own um, parenting plan of what's considered quote success. Like we always hear like raise a successful child. We like to broaden that idea with like, what does that mean for you? And what you're saying is, you know, having a successful person, raising a successful person is someone who is caring, someone who is contributing, someone who is engaged, which is awesome. And, and in my experience, both, um, like through my work and, um, through my own raising of kids, that's, what's important. I feel like the rest of the stuff gets worked out. Like, it does matter what you do because we want people to be fulfilled in what they do. But that comes after those technical skills are to me secondary to how you feel as an individual. Do you have coping skills? Are you resilient? You know, are you caring and empathic? And because those kind of people who connect with people and, um, benefit other people's lives, get stuff back, right? So how do we build a child that understands community? And those are, those, those are already your guiding, like your guiding values as you're parenting. So when you get your first, you know, maybe, um, you know, shut up. I don't like you. You're stupid. I hate you. Whatever those things are, right? Yeah. Um, it is taking that deep breath and being like, okay, what are they trying to communicate? you know, what situation are they in? What did I maybe trigger? Where are they nervous or scared? Because a lot of time kids are really pushing back, you know, appropriately. Um, for some reason or another, we just want to help give them different words, you know, hey, mm-hmm. and, and then we as parents have decisions to say, like, you know, go to your room, don't you ever talk to me that way again, I'm taking away everything for, you know, a year. Or is it, um, I, you know, I, I see you're really, is you sound really upset right now. Um, can you tell me what's going on? Or could you tell me you're upset in a different way? Right? I mean, there are all these options because I don't think it's like, how do we prevent our kid from ever talking like that or doing that? It's how are we going to handle the situation with our values um, mm-hmm. when the situations arise? Right, right. And I feel like that's the hard thing. I also feel like there's information overload out there. Um which is something that I've recently decided I really need to limit myself on mm-hmm. because what's going on around me, like really, I can like, I don't know, sometimes I can feel the weight of the world yeah. <laughs> and there's like yeah. uh, information overload just even with parenting and stuff like that. And I think it's amazing to learn and to grow. 
Um, like I followed some really great accounts on Instagram that have, I've been like, oh, wow, I've never thought of it. Like similar to like what you just said. Um, I'm like, oh, I've never like thought maybe I could communicate this different way or, or I didn't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, but at the same time, I feel like we're like downloading so much that it's like, okay, quiet the noise. And then like when you're actually present, um, it also changes how you parent, right? Like, cause you see people who are just like on their phones, on their phones and then like, shut up, stop doing that. And they don't yeah. really like know what's going on. It's so much easier to like snap at your kid when they're being annoying, quote unquote, when you're like just on your phone or not paying attention. So, um, I realized like, I just need to be a lot more present with my daughter and to like maybe unfollow some people or limit time on, on my phone. It's hard when you like work right yeah, on your, right, on your phone right. and computer, but just like even setting hours for myself with that. Um, and, and being more present, I realize makes me like so much like mm -hmm. she's learning so much right now. She's teething. She's trying to walk and her cries don't bother me. Like when she cries, like I want to be there for her. I want to nurture her. Um, I want to respond to her. Um, mm -hmm. and I can just see how, like, if you're already annoyed, then maybe it could like be more annoying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And your, uh, again, your, your wisdom is coming through. <laughs> I like really, because you're talking about all of these really important things that have nothing to do with information and tools and have everything to do with you being grounded, you being present and you being aware and responsive to your child. And I mm -hmm. think that's what happens with we have so much information. I mean, there's so much parenting information, um, child development uh, information. And I, I mean, obviously, th there's a lot of great information, but how do we limit it so we don't drown out our own inner instincts, like our own inner voice that's saying, I know right. my child, my child's trying to communicate with me, or I'm completely distracted. I am just reacting because I'm distracted and I'm stressed. And if we can turn down the noise, like you're saying, um, like that's the best thing that we can give our kids is that attention and that focus and being, and, and what we say being regulated ourselves so we can respond mm -hmm. to them authentically in real time. Mm hmm. Yeah. And it's definitely hard this day and age. I feel like it's, you have to set those limits and those boundaries for yourself. Mm -hmm, for have sure. you, um, have you heard of a book called it didn't start with you by Mark Wolin? No. So that's kind of what got me a couple years ago on this, like talking about, um, things that we want to pass down and things that we don't, it's about inherited family trauma. Mm. And it was very, very interesting and eye opening to me to like, start to learn, like, what do we want to pass down? What don't we? And I definitely had some like distracted parenting. Um, I also feel like being the youngest, like I just, I was go with the flow. I had like a nephew by the time I was six years old. Hmm. So, uh, I became an aunt at that age yeah. and like my world revolved around everyone else's, which I don't think your world should revolve around your children. I was listening to one of your episodes where they were 13 things that parents don't oh, do. Oh, right, right, right. <laughs> That's like, don't make your entire world about your kid, which I think is important because they need to learn that we're all members to the family. We all contribute to the family um, and we all, you know, share time and, and ideas. And um, but that book really got me into like being like, OK, what are the things that could have even been traumatic that um, that happened that 
it's not my parents' fault, right? Um, everyone's doing the best that they know how. My parents did the best that they know how. I grew up feeling very loved and um, didn't have like anything largely traumatic happen to me. But there was definitely some some messaging that maybe I received that I'm like, okay, so how do I not do this to my kids? And and it's cool because then my dad read the book and he loved it. And he was mm. like, oh my gosh, I wish I had this 20 years ago. And um, it is hard though. I mean, it's it's you want to like learn what you can that you want to like pass down and change the things. But it's like in those moments, like your kids are your mirrors and they're reflecting everything in you that like you yes. want to change about yourself. Yes. Um, and that's where it's like, I'm parenting myself, you know, like, yeah. I, yeah. although I'm not really parenting her yet, there's still things that like, when I get triggered by something, I'm like, this has nothing to do with her. This is my own thing that I need to work through. And like, but I know it's just going to get harder when she can talk back. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, for sure. But again, Liz, like that you are aware that she's the mirror and she's reflecting back to you yourself. And that, yeah. um, as we talked about in a uh, recent episode about reparenting and that, you know, our job is to continue to parent and reparent ourselves as we grow. And as we have these oh, new, again, experiences and awarenesses, it's like, so why am I getting triggered by this behavior that this little person is doing so much, but this one, I don't care at all, right? That's mm -hmm. usually something about us. So again, you're aware of all this. And I think, I think I understand the, um, the nervousness, the angst is it's all the uncertainty, like what's going to come right. our way. How am I going to handle it? And again, that's all future stuff, but you're totally right. poised to be aware of all these things in the moment yeah. when you're able to stay present. I feel like it's just like easier said than done though. Oh, it's for might sure. be aware, but like as soon as I have to really start putting it into practice, yeah. <laughs> that's like yes. where it's like, I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> No, you don't. And I, and as someone who has, um, you know, worked with kids and adolescents and people come to for advice, uh, it's like so humbling that when you're in the same situations that you have all these answers for in your office, um, that you're just like every other parent <laughs> drops your knees of like, like some of the stuff, like, how do I deal with this? Or, oh my gosh, I so blew it. I can't believe I reacted that way. And, uh, a lot of it's about being kind and then trying to learn from each each moment. Mm -hmm. I think in knowing like you're going to blow it at times, For right? Sure. Like For sure. I, I know I'm going to lose it at some point and then I'm going to have to be like, I'm sorry, I lost it. <laughs> yeah, right. Which is huge because just that act of parents going back to their kids of any age and saying, you know what? I'm sorry. I didn't handle that the way I wanted to. And next time I'm going to try to do this. Like it doesn't negate what led to the actual reaction. Um, yeah. But that is huge modeling for, for a child. Um, and there, mm -hmm. then there's repair in that as well. So uh, stuff doesn't get harbored and, you know, you can move on and the relationship can move on. Yeah. I've yeah. started practicing that a little bit with my daughter now. I've realized that like if we're like playing on the floor or whatever. And I get distracted by my phone and I'm on my phone doing something. And she comes up and kind of like hits my phone away or something. And I'm always like, you're right. I'm sorry. I need to put this away. And I like turn it off and I put it away, then like focus on her. Mm -hmm. Um, and I always like use that as like my reminder. And I feel like it's good to like start learning how to like apologize and do that now. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be like a big blow up moment. It can just be like, even yeah. for me, like, 
yeah, I need to put this away. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Okay. So continuing and ending with the theme of awareness, we have the parent footprint awareness question for you. The parent footprint moment question. Tell us about a time when you had a new awareness about yourself as an individual or as a parent, and that new awareness had a positive impact on you, your child, or anyone you love. So I'm going to do individual because I feel like I really haven't been a parent that long. <laughs> um, although I feel like parenthood's definitely full of awarenesses. Um, but I, I, I think when I was like 27, um, I actually took a job in Tanzania. I worked at a safari lodge, mm. which was really cool in the Serengeti. I had been traveling a bunch and then I came back to Vegas and, and left again for this job. And I was there for like six months. And um, where I was at, I was very disconnected. I had a friend who was there with me for a few months and then she left early to go home. So it was really just me and the workers. And I was very unqualified for managing this, <laughs> this lodge. I don't know how I got this job, um, but I guess I was supposed to be there. <laughs> and um, I didn't really have like good Wi-Fi or anything like that. So the last couple months I was a little bit lonely and I felt like I, I had this awareness that in, in the silence is like where you actually learn so much about yourself. And in those moments of silence, that's where, I mean, hearing your thoughts is something that I think we all run from. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that mm -hmm. we're so good at drowning out now. And it's something I still do now. Um, but when, when you're in those sil in the, in the silence, you give yourself the opportunity to actually hear your thoughts, actually hear what you're going through and then to actually accept it, like to mm -hmm. accept yourself, to accept your thoughts and then learn to love it. And that was definitely what I needed at that point in my life. I had been on a long healing journey from an eating disorder and, uh, a breakup and all this different stuff. And I was literally just like in silence in the middle of nowhere. Mm. I didn't have a TV, like <laughs> no distractions, <laughs> no distractions. And it was so freaking hard. I had a journal. I had some music. I had a very weak Wi-Fi connection that I'd like Facebook message my parents on. Um, and I learned a lot about myself and I learned that you have to give yourself those moments of silence. Like you have mm. to put down the distractions. Like if you really want to like understand like what's going on and, um, but that's also really hard. Most people don't yeah. want that silence because the things yeah. that come up can be scary, but you, you can face it. So mm -hmm. I feel like that was a time in my life where that awareness came and it's something that even now I try to remind myself, like I haven't done it yet. <laughs> But I remind myself that I yeah. should. I'm like, hey, Jovi's been waking up around this time. Why don't you set your alarm 30 minutes early just so you can like go sit outside and have some peace and quiet in the morning before the day gets going and like give yourself that silence. Mm. Um, like I said, I haven't done it yet. I tell yeah. myself that I need to, but it did bring up that awareness, like how important that that silence like really is and that it's definitely something that I need to incorporate into my life. And to um, accept and love what mm -hmm. comes up, right? right. Instead of those critical voices and that wanting to change. And we're some we're like our hardest on ourselves. So it's like, oh, you, yeah. right, taking the time and then just looking at them and uh, embracing them. Right. 
which is yeah. hard because but then that's like I feel like when you really start to to love yourself. So if you're struggling yeah. with loving yourself, yeah. give yourself some silence. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for this conversation um, and for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you so much for having me on. I was like, like I said, I was listening to to your podcast and um, it's an honor to be on here. You have like such amazing guests and I'm like a little, I feel like underqualified <laughs> to be Not on Not at <laughs> all. Not at all. Well, tell everyone where they can find your great podcast and um, Instagram and every place to follow you. Yeah. So the podcast is called Miraculous Mamas. We are going to be doing some rebranding changes happening soon. But uh, if you're subscribed to the podcast, you'll be along the ride for all of that. Uh, It's Miraculous Mamas on Instagram or my personal Instagram is eSandos. And I share some of my motherhood journey on there. Well, thank you very much for sharing it all with us today. All right, everyone. That's the end of the show. You know what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to be the person that you want your child to become. He or she, they are always watching, they're listening, they're learning from us at all times. And ask yourself the guiding question that I ask myself every day. What footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.